Welcome to the New Thinking for a New World podcast, where we explore the most pressing issues that are challenging and changing our societies. We are looking for new thinking and new solutions wherever we can find them. Listen as host Alan Stoga, the Talberg Foundation's chairman, challenges his guests for analysis, ideas and actions. Together, we can help make our world at least a bit better. Who is Vladimir Putin? What does he want? What are his red lines? How far will he go to achieve what he wants? What drives him? Would he really go nuclear? The whole world is looking for answers. Getting those answers right, that is understanding Vladimir Putin, is literally a life and death issue. Not just for the Ukrainians under assault from Russia's invasion, but for the rest of Europe and arguably most of everyone on the planet. My guest today is uniquely positioned to help us find some answers. Philip Short is a British journalist with a long career as a foreign correspondent in Moscow, Beijing, and Washington for the BBC, The Economist, and The Times of London. He is also an accomplished author, having written biographies of Mao, Pol Pot, and Francois Mitterrand. Most importantly for us today, he has recently published a deeply detailed, incredibly insightful biography that is simply titled... Putin. Welcome, Philip. Hi. First, let me congratulate you on producing a book that was praised in The Guardian and criticized in The Washington Post. That alone is an accomplishment. (laughs) Seriously, though, Putin is an amazing, is an amazing accomplishment, not the least because your goal, which I think you accomplished, was clearly to try to understand and explain the Russian leader in his own context, not who we in the West would like him to be, or the monster that some think he is, but who he is in a Russian context. So let me start at the beginning. Why did you write Putin? Because at the time I started this, uh, and I I would argue it's probably still true today, he was simply the most interesting leader around. Um, I started back in 2013, 2014, eight years ago, uh, just at the time of the Crimean annexation. I worked in Moscow. Uh, I have Russian, uh, rusty Russian, but uh, I can understand that I can read it. I've had experience. You know, I was in Moscow 50 years ago pretty well um, in in the 1970s when Brezhnev was in power. So that was a huge plus because it gives you perspective. It allows you to look back and, and think, well, this is what the Soviet Union was like and what's Russia like now? And that it's frankly a different planet. Um, and has been uh, since since the, the mid-1990s. So Putin, an extraordinarily interesting leader, Russia, a fascinating country, and the challenge, which I found absolutely irresistible, of trying to get behind this opaque, secretive, uh, ruthless uh, personality. Uh, you know, what what is underneath that hard shell? What makes Putin tick? And how does he operate? So that's why I did it. And it was worth spending eight years on because it was a fascinating topic. As I've read the reviews, the criticism of the book basically is that you did it. That is to say that you didn't just accept the notion that he is, as I said earlier, a monster, or as Merkel said, he's someone who's lost touch with reality, but rather a personality that needs to be understood if we're going to cope with him as we have no choice but to cope with him. Is that fair? 
somebody said, I think it was Ed Lucas, who is one of my, my fairly stern critics, Ed Lucas, who, who uh, is at The Economist, and there's some very hawkish views on Russia. When all is said and done, Putin is not the cardboard cutout. Um, Mike McFall, uh, your ambassador in, 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 uh, in Russia, also said so much of the, of the coverage of Putin is actually cartoonish, the word he used, caricature. You know, this is a human being with all kinds of, of faults, of, of wickedness, of crimes, of achievements, of aspirations and hopes. And to try and reduce him just to a kind of black and white, mainly black cutout, doesn't help. It doesn't help us understand where he, you know, who he is. So you mentioned earlier on, yeah, the New York Times, like the book, the Washington Post said, oh, you're giving him the benefit of the doubt. Well, what I tried to do in this book is to find out the facts, you know, what uh, is true about Putin, what is not true, and a lot of what we think is true actually is not true, and vice versa. Um, you know, that has been a detective story. So I tried to set out the facts and let readers judge for themselves. And that's kind of not, not so usual these days. People like books where they, they, they tell you what to think and you take a very clear um, direction, you take a very clear line. Well, the fact that different newspaper uh, reviewers took different views, I think in a way is a compliment because they, <laughs> they read the facts in, in the way they wanted to and that's exactly what the book is supposed to be. So let's dig in. You describe in detail Putin's evolution from an underperforming punk kid to an underperforming university student, to an underperforming KGB agent in East Germany. Fast forward to the unchallenged president of, of Russia, uh, which is an amazing transformation. It's a long story and a long book. But can you distill that transformation? What made Putin Putin? Impossible question. I apologize for it. Well, you, you, putting it that way, underperforming, underperforming, and then unchallenged, you, you make me think of certain people I've, know, I've known in the past, um, in journalism and in politics, who have been, um, as you would say, underperforming. You know, they, they just didn't find their, their right niche. And then suddenly they got into the right place and wow, did they blossom. Now, in a way that has been true of Putin. Um, he uh, would have had a very middling, perhaps even mediocre career if the Soviet Union had not collapsed. And suddenly opportunities, extraordinary opportunities started opening. First of all, in St. Petersburg, where uh, he went from being an, you know, an advisor, uh, two and a half years later, he was acting mayor of Russia's second city. Um, then he went to Moscow and he shot up like a rocket um, because he was always in the right place uh, where he seemed to be indispensable. And people said, you know, who, who on earth are we going to find to do this? And Putin was there. So, you, you know, there is, a, there is a logic to it. He's not an accidental president. He hid his ambition uh, very well. Most people thought, oh, you know, he's not ambitious. He's never going to go anywhere. Um, he was ambitious. And one of the few people who saw it was his wife, Lyudmila, who said, yeah, no, he, he could. If he, if he decides to, he will. 
um, wives are often right about these things. And he did. Um, so, yes, it's been a, I mean, you look back at his childhood, uh, as you say, a, a punk kind of, you know, a would-be street kid, a, a little hooligan, but lots of things which he's carried on to his later life, a very low sense of risk, great secretiveness. Even as a child, he played his cards very close to his chest. Um, many of the characters very unemotional, or at least very very uh, teen and very effective in not showing his emotions. And uh, someone who was very self-disciplined also, terrific self-control. Um, lots of people who work with him now will say, you know, he, he never shows anger. Well, he didn't as a child. He tried to keep it all inside. Um, because to, to show what he was really about would leave him vulnerable. He hid it. He doesn't, in your telling, seem to have mentors. He finds people to work for and then surpasses them, but doesn't seem to have a mentor-mentee relationship with them. Seems to learn, seems to be self-contained in, 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 in many ways. Is that, is, is that a fair reading? I think that's certainly been true in his later, his later life. Um, but as a child, no, he did have mentors. He had a school teacher, a German teacher who recognized that actually he had qualities, you know, he was, he was a bad kid who was always getting into trouble. This teacher recognized that uh, he was probably doing that because he was bored, um, that he, he, he had a very quick mind, very retentive memory, um, and she brought him on. His judo teacher, that was the same. And then uh, I'm not sure whether really you can call the mayor of St. Petersburg, Anatoly Sovchak, um, a mentor. It sort of started that way, and Putin had respect for, for, for Sobchak. But as you say, he very quickly went beyond the level at which Sobchak had been operating. So it, as a child, yes, he did, but not since. I want to get to Ukraine in a moment, but first I'd like to talk about the backstory. Uh, Putin seems to be one of these people who has been pretty clear in his public statements since he's been president about what he wants, how he views the world. Famously, the 2007 uh, Munich security uh, speech um, and, and many speeches since then, including quite recently. Uh, he does seem to be one of these people who says what he means and means what he says to be trite. Um, but we tend not to take the words seriously. How did we miss 2007, 2014? Uh, is it our fault? We're just not listening. We don't. We can't get beyond our own frame to accept that he's looking with a dramatically different frame. I'd go back much earlier than that, you know, Alan. I, I would say, um, why do we forget uh, what Putin was saying back in 2000, uh, the early 2000s, when he made very clear that he saw Russia's place as being part of what he called, you know, the civilized world. In other words, uh, in, a, in a harmonious, amicable relationship with the West. And it didn't happen. Um, some people will say, oh, well, that was just a pose. Um, it really wasn't. It was extremely consistent. If you look back to the time when 9-11 took place, the Al-Qaeda attacks on the US, 
not only was Putin the first guy to, to try and phone George W. Bush, but after that, he went absolutely out on a limb to try and help the United States for his own pragmatic purposes, as he, as he admitted. You know, it wasn't that he was you know, giving gifts. Uh, he saw it was in Russia's interest. And he was very much criticized within Russia for doing that. Why are you helping the Americans and you're getting absolutely nothing in return? And people said, you're behaving like Gorbachev. You know, he, he cozied up to the West and what did he get back? Absolutely zilch. And Putin said, this is not Putin's policy. Rapprochement with the West is Russia's policy. So at the beginning, there really was um, a desire, not just on Putin's part, but I think on the whole of the Russian part of the whole of the Russian establishment to have a normal, um, productive, healthy relationship with the West. And it went south. Uh, it absolutely fell apart. And as you say, at Munich in 2007, he finally gave voice to his frustrations in no uncertain fashion. And one of the things which amazes me is that it took seven years for him actually to start to believe this is never going to work. Uh, the West is uh, not going to pay attention to Russian concerns. It's going to try and bring Russia to its knees and all the tra-la-la, tra-la-la, the stuff that we've been hearing for the last 10 years. It took a long time. He really hung in there. And you can say, why? You know, whose fault was it? I'm not sure it's useful to talk in terms of fault. I think the fundamental problem was that the United States, leader of the free world, winner of the Cold War, was determined to lead. And Russia wanted respect, it wanted to be accepted as a, in some senses as an equal and refused to be led. So there was built into the equation from the very beginning, and this is something that Bill Burns, who was the ambassador uh, in, in Moscow before he became CIA chief, long before he became CIA chief said, you know, an, an explosion of conflict was there from the very start because both sides uh, were deluded, both sides had illusions about what the other was prepared to do. So it screwed up and it's led to the mess where we are now. And I would just say one more thing. I, you know, uh, we, we said, I, I just said, you shouldn't try and assign blame, but we won the Cold War. Now, when uh, victors in a war, um, it's the victor who decides, who sets the agenda for what follows. And if we set the agenda for what followed, which we did, and it's led to the situation we have now, I think it's fair to ask whether we did everything right. I want to come back to that question, perhaps in our next conversation, because I think the comparison of whether it's Versailles, the Congress of Vienna, or whatever we're going to get after this war, how wars end and, and, and how the winners and losers negotiate a future is incredibly important. Uh, but for the moment, I want to stay where we are. We're in the ninth, war, ninth month of this war. Um, the Russia has recently announced the annexation of various conquered territories. At the same time, Ukraine and its Western allies uh, have said the only acceptable outcome is a Russian defeat, whatever that means. Propaganda aside, both sides propaganda aside, how do you think the Putin that you have studied for all these years is thinking about the war now? 
early October. We are where we are. It hasn't gone the way he expected it to go, apparently. Um, how do you think he sees the possibilities today? He's not someone to walk away from a fight. He never has. Uh, as, as a small boy, you know, he would attack a much bigger hulking guy and go on uh, no matter what happened to him in the fight until he won. Um, and it was something his school friends would comment on. You know, you don't mess with Putin because you know, he just never gives up. Uh, that is to some extent, still the case today. And I think most, most Russians, most Russians and people in the Russian elite would, if you ask them that question, would say he will escalate and he will escalate um, uh, until he reaches a point where he can achieve something which he's going to call victory um, or which he can present as victory. Uh, I, I mean, it's, we, we tend to say, oh, you know, how could he have, made such a crazy mistake going into Ukraine. Um, he got everything wrong. As you say, it hasn't worked out at all as he expected. But I think the fundamental mistake, and it's the mistake that is still with him now, is to have overestimated. All along, he's overestimated the capacities of the Russian armed forces. Had they done what he wanted and expected, taken Kiev, removed uh, Zelensky, decapitated the Ukrainian government. If that had happened, we'd be in a very different place from where we are now. The West would not be doing what it is. Yes, there'd be sanctions and there'd be some, some uh, arms aid, but it would be much on a much smaller scale because there would not be a, a kind of organized regular army fighting the Russians. Um, uh, I, I, I think one has to say, you know, it, it wasn't quite as lunatic as it appeared once it started to go wrong, but it was overreach. And the only way out of it that I, I think that he can see is to keep on escalating. I don't think that's going to change. Well, that is the short version of Russian military doctrine, escalate to de-escalate. So that there's a consistency there between how the Russians tend to think about war and how you describe him thinking about the world. That would suggest that we may be closer to the beginning than to the end of this conflict. Um, on the one hand, the West, as you just described, has reacted in a way that no one anticipated. Much more extensive sanctions, a sort of rejuvenation, at least for the moment, of NATO, massive arms supply, massive intelligence support, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, on the other hand, uh, the Russians just keep slugging away. Uh, so there doesn't seem to be an obvious, an obvious way out of this other than escalate to de-escalate. I, I absolutely agree. Um, one of the problems is that there is no obvious way out of this. And, but I would keep going back to this. The weakness, the failures, the incompetence of the Russian armed forces is really the key to everything that's happened. Because you quite rightly say the West has responded much more um, forcefully than anyone had anticipated. The Ukrainians have fought much better than anyone expected. That's all true. But it wouldn't necessarily, I think it wouldn't have happened if the Russians had 
succeeded within a matter of days as they originally hoped. And it's the weakness of the Russian army that, that holds the key to what is going to happen from now on. What's going to happen if the Russians are pushed back from these newly acquired, newly um, annexed uh, territories, the four oblasts of, of Ukraine? How will Putin react then? Um, at what point will it become existential? And at what point will he think of using um, extraordinary means to stop it if the Russian army is not capable of doing so by conventional means? Well, that was indeed exactly where I was going with my next question, because he has talked about nuclear weapons. Uh, he talked about it earlier in the conflict, and then it calmed down a little bit. And now he's talked about it recently. Some of my friends in Washington and in Europe insist he's not suicidal, that he would not use nuclear weapons or other weapons of mass destruction. Others say we made a mistake repeatedly of not listening to him when he talks, and he is talking about this, so let's listen. Uh, the American National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, recently said we sent messages and told him precise things we would do, whatever they might be, if indeed he were to use nuclear weapons. How seriously do you take his talk about nuclear weapons? In conditions, as you described, if there's an existential challenge, he's being he's been pushed back. The military, underperforming military is pushed back into Crimea. Uh, they're fighting for Crimea. They're fighting for Sevastopol. Uh, are those the conditions under which he goes to extraordinary? I would certainly not rule it out. And the question is, uh, what would trigger that? Um, I think it might well be if Russian forces are pushed back out of the four areas that they have annexed. Um, uh, if it gets to Crimea, um, I would think pretty certain, um, well, certain is perhaps too harsh, hard a way of putting it, but a very good chance that uh, nuclear weapons, uh, tactical nuclear weapons would be used. I, I think one has to take that very seriously. Um, it, one of the problems of this is that there's no way, it's very hard to see the Ukrainians sitting down at the negotiating table and getting to a negotiated settlement. Um, given the way the war has, has, has worked out. It's impossible to see Putin doing so unless he can claim some kind of victory. So, in other words, the, the two sides' positions are so far apart, it's very, very hard to see, indeed, I don't think it can happen, that we get to negotiations and, until there are very major changes. Now, um, use of nuclear, tactical nuclear weapons, use of battlefield nuclear weapons, there are various things which are advanced as, as being discouragements to Putin. One, how would the Chinese react? Um, secondly, uh, how would uh, Russian troops, Russian conventional troops on the ground, cope if they were in, in a war in which tactical nuclear weapons have been let off? You know, do they have the protective clothing and all that kind of stuff? Um, no, they almost certainly don't. So there are question marks over it. But my guess is that if he's really got his back to the wall, yes, he will. And 
people have been saying, well, it'll just be a demonstration you know, to show what we could do. I don't, I don't buy that. I think if he decides to do it, it will probably be um, dozens of, of tactical nuclear weapons in a, a really coordinated all-out attack um, to change the military situation fundamentally. So it's a pretty ugly, ugly outcome if, if we ever get there. Uh, the only thing I, I would add is I don't think we will necessarily get there, um, but it will depend very much on the way the battlefield situation develops and whether the Russian forces are able to hold together and hold the land they have. If you feel that the world lacks global leaders, please help support the Talberg Foundation programs. Individual donations are being accepted at talbergfoundation.org slash donate. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org slash donate. You just mentioned uh, China, so I would like to go down that rabbit hole. Presidents uh, Putin and Xi met early in February in Beijing. They issued an absolutely amazing communique describing a worldview that could be not be more at odds with anything that could come out of Washington or Berlin or London or Paris. Uh, again, I'm not sure we took it at face value. We sort of ignored it in the West. Uh, and the rest is history. The Chinese continue to support the Russians, apparently, perhaps more in fact than in voice. But that's a different point. I'd like to ask you about the relationship between Putin and Xi. Um, indeed, I hope that is the subject of your next book. We need to understand Xi as well as we as you've helped us understand Putin. Um, but Putin is a sort that I wouldn't think would enjoy being the junior partner in a relationship. And that looks like what is evolving or maybe even the head of a vassal state uh, in, in subservience to a dominant China. Uh, is it just a marriage of convenience? Is it something bigger, do you think? Well, it's a marriage of convenience in some ways. Uh, and Putin is certainly very well aware of, of the dangers of Russia becoming a junior partner in that relationship. Um, but he's decided that it's, in given the circumstances in which he finds himself, that he doesn't really have a better choice. Um, uh, he and she have a... Um, a good personal relationship. There's a personal chemistry that, that works between them and has been built up over the last 10 years. Um, the, 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 the Chinese, I think, there is a, we said marriage of convenience, but um, they do share a worldview. Um, both uh, Russia and China uh, are opposed to what they see as American hegemonism. Um, uh, that America should be the consider itself to be the dominant voice setting the course for the rest of the world to follow. That's how they see it. Um, and they look forward to the end of that time. Now, in that context, I think uh, to have Putin as the attack dog, um, you know, nipping at uh, the West's heels in Ukraine um, suits the Chinese really quite well. They're not having to put a, a dog in that fight themselves. Um, they, they, they can let Putin do it and they can, you know, kind of sit back and try and say, well, uh, we're taking a median position. The Indians, India is, is 
very similar in that regard. So are many other countries in, in the third world. The legacy of the Cold War, where um, uh, America and the Soviet Union were directly opposed to one another, and developing countries often felt that um, the Soviet Union was more sympathetic to their aims than the United States was. That has not disappeared. There is a, um, a, a legacy of resentment and rancor towards um, the West in general because of colonialism, America in particular because of its leading role that has not gone away. So all those countries would actually not mind America being taken down a peg. And they see Putin as being uh, at the forefront of efforts to do so. You earlier mentioned and described Putin as a leader. I would argue he's a transformational leader, and that will get me into trouble with some people, I'm sure. But he did take a country that was close to being a failed state and made it into something else. Um, indeed, part of the purpose, I think, of you writing the book, uh, as, you, as you write in the book, is to understand how he became the leader that he is. Uh, we won't go over all that territory again, but how do you think about his leadership? Because this is a world where leadership is in short supply, uh, or rather effective leadership is in short supply. And he is effective. It may not be good, but he is effective. Yes, it's certainly in, in short supply. And you're talking to a, a, a Briton. So uh, my country is in particular short supply, I'm afraid. Um, Yes, I mean, you make a very good point. You say transformational leader. He has presided over changes in Russia, which in, in the first half of his period in power gave Russians freedoms they'd never had before, gave them a level of prosperity they'd never had before, gave them possibilities uh, that Russians have never enjoyed at any point in their history. Now, that has, there's been a lot of backsliding over the last few years, particularly the last four years. But... To, to, to portray Putin as uniformly black and having achieved nothing is, is a mistake. Um, he did accomplish a great deal. Um, he did a load of bad stuff too. He failed to make certain reforms that he should have made. Um, you know, it, it's a very mixed picture, but don't forget the achievements as well as all, all, all the terrible failures and the mistakes and the, and, and the crimes, because there have been crimes as well. Um, one thinks of the killing of Litvinenko in, in London, who, which Putin certainly authorized, and the attempt to, to poison Navalny, which Putin certainly authorized. So very, very mixed picture. Um, but uh, Russia is even now uh, a better place than it was when it was kind of right at the bottom and on its knees in the 1990s. The question is, this misguided, and I do think it was fundamentally misguided decision to go into Ukraine, um, where is that going to take him? What's that going to do for his legacy? He'd hoped that if he brought Ukraine to heel, that would be kind of the crowning achievement of his, of, of his, his rule. Um, as it is, it's looking very dicey. Um, I wouldn't say he's going to, at this stage, I, don't, I think it's too early to say, yes, he's going to have a complete failure. It's going to end in catastrophe for him. It may not, but at least it's very uncertain how it's going to play out. 
I have dozens of other questions, but I don't have dozens of other minutes. But you mentioned Novani, so I have to pull on that thread. One of the things, and you make this case in your book, but one of the things I've recently realized about Putin and about Russia is that they have, the country has, and he has, what I view as a Westerner, a weird commitment to the forms of legality. Um, I have been quite surprised that they would hold these these votes for annexation, and that makes it official. I have been surprised in a number of other cases. A friend of mine, a journalist, recently was able to leave Russia, but they told her in advance what was going to happen and, and how the legal process would work. She received a series of notices. I would have expected, I, I feared for her just being locked up, but instead they gave her plenty of time to get out of Dodge. Um, now, this is a real Westerner question. How do they think about law and government and institutions? Why do those annexations matter to him? Why does the process of chasing Novani through the courts, as opposed to just grabbing him off the street and either murdering him, as they have with other opponents, or locking him up and throwing another key. We recently read an op-ed in the Washington Post from Navani, which is not characteristic of most political prisoners locked up in most gulags. Yes, I saw that. It is interesting. And it's interesting now, and a lot of people listening to us may be surprised, but um, there are still uh, websites, um, blogs, uh, lots of stuff on the internet where Putin is criticized and what is happening in, in Russia and what's happening in Ukraine is really torn apart by, by, by critics who uh, don't mince their words. Now, if you compare that with, say, China, where the first squeak of that kind of protest, the guy would be arrested and imprisoned and, and uh, would stay in prison for a long time. Yes, there's a very harsh repression in Russia, but it is not at a totalitarian level. There are still lots of kind of little interstices and cracks in the, in the system where uh, freedom <laughs> shows its face. Um, so it's, it's, again, it's not all black and white. Um, but you asked about law. Um, Russia wishes to think of itself as a civilized country. And civilized countries obey the forms of legality. So you have a referendum. So you have court cases. And the referendum is completely fake. <laughs> the results are, you know, Stalin said, it doesn't matter who, who, who votes, it matters who counts the votes. Um, uh, that's probably apocryphal, but, but you get the idea. Um, and the court cases are decided in advance by telephone justice coming down from the presidential administration. Nonetheless, the forms are there, and Russia at least can tell itself, look, we're behaving like civilized human beings. Final question. You've written about Mao and Pol Pot, uh, both ideologues. Indeed, Mitterrand was deeply socialist, even if he turns in, he goes towards austerity at the end of his day, but nonetheless mm -hmm. has, has a clear ideology throughout his career. The Putin you described does not seem to be driven by ideology. He's a practical man, certainly a Russian nationalist. Is that what, at the end of the day, drives him? 
Yeah, I'd agree with you about Pol Pot and Mao being ideologues. Um, I think I think deep down, Mitron was very pragmatic too. He kind of dreamt dreams about socialism, but he did what was needed to get into power. He was a very tricky guy, uh, Francois Mitron. Um, Putin, uh, yes, is very pragmatic. Um, he his his kind of absolutely driving motivation is. Um, to to see Russia stand up again, to see Russia respected, um, and to put the period in the 1990s when really Russia was on its knees. It was completely humiliated. And frankly, the West um, thought it would stay humiliated for decades to come. To put that period behind him and uh, to, to... I won't say make Russia great again, because that's too much like another slogan we know, but fundamentally restore uh, Russian, Russia's self-respect and power. And I think everything uh, has to be seen through that prism. That's what he fundamentally wants. Um, and that's why he went into Ukraine, um, to bring Ukraine to heal, but also to tell America, uh, you in the West, you have to, to respect Russian interests. Ukraine, the war in Ukraine is not just about Ukraine. It's very much about Russia measuring itself against America and saying to America, there's a red line, you can't cross it. Uh, these are Russian interests. This is a Russian sphere of interest. Um, uh, so uh, that's what he wanted to achieve. And looks like he's terribly overreached. And it's going to be very difficult for him to extricate himself from the situation he's got into. Philip Short, thank you very much for this conversation. And thank you for the book, Putin. I would highly recommend it to everyone. I don't recommend people carry it around because it's a bit heavy, but I would recommend that they consume it. So again, thank you very much. Thank you, Alan. Thanks. Thank you for joining us. Please rate our show on Apple Podcast and subscribe. Meanwhile, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergfoundation.org to learn more about our work. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org. Thank you and we'll be back again next week for another episode of Talberg's New Thinking for a New World. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation.